Welcome to Stuff You Should Know from HowStuffWorks.com. Hey, and welcome to the podcast. I'm Josh Clark. There's Charles W. Chuck Bryant and Jerry. And uh, Chuck's got a um, noise machine, so this could turn into like morning zoo type episode. No, I'm not going to use it. It's a lame one. It is pretty lame. Uh, like, is it marked? What does it do? How many different functions does it have, Chuck? One, two, three, four. One, two, three, four, five. That would be 20. 20. Nice job. You just used multiplication. That's right. Uh, but like I said, when I first sat down, it doesn't even have a fart sound. So how good of a noise machine could it be? How does it not? It's got a burp. I mean, they make sound machines that just have that sound. Well, yeah, it's called a whoopee cushion. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know if that's a machine, though. Eh, probably not. Okay. I a think, device. I don't think I said this stuff you should know, in case you hadn't figured it out. Yeah, well, someone just stumbled upon this, and they're horrified. Oh, already. they turned it off a good minute ago. Yeah, and we're going to talk about alcoholism, and there's nothing more fun than that. <laughs> right. This one should be a laugh riot. Right. Well, it, you can definitely perk things up with your little noise machine over there. <laughs> no, I wouldn't do that. Uh, so, alcoholism, Chuck, turns out, in researching this, um, we should say, let us shout out to some previous episodes that really tie into this. Totally. We did Prohibition. Yeah. Colon, turns out America really loves to drink. Mm-hmm. That was one episode. Uh, we did addiction. Yeah, good one. Uh, and we did one on rehab. Yep, another good one. Um, yeah. And then if you want to count like beer. Yeah, the booze ones. Or uh, I think we did one on moonshine. Mm-hmm. We did one on and whiskey runners. Did we do one on whiskey runners? We ended up doing like two somehow on whiskey runners. Did we? Yeah. <laughs> uh, what else? Oh, I'm sure there are others, but I think the ones on addiction and rehab definitely factor in. Indeed. So um, in running across this, though, I was reminded that, yes, America loves drinking. Yeah, the world does. But not necessarily. I saw a statistic that blew me away. What's that? 66% of the human beings over age, I believe, 15 worldwide mm-hmm. have not had a drink in the last 12 months. According to a major survey, like really? World Health Organization type level survey. I don't remember where I saw it because I saw so many different statistics here there. Yeah. But like mo- the majority of the population of the the earth has not had a drink in the last 12 months. Interesting. Yeah, I thought that was interesting too. And of course, there's entire countries that are basically teetotaling. Yeah, and there are entire countries that are drunk. Right. <laughs> so, um, in America is definitely one of them, right? America loves sure. to drink. We drink um, very regularly. At other countries, they don't drink necessarily during the week. Yeah. But they really plow into it on the weekends. Mm-hmm. Um, and all of this t- falls, it turns out, falls under this umbrella called um, alcohol use disorders. Yeah. Binge drinking, mm-hmm. alcohol abuse, yep. and alcoholism. Three different things. They are. Yeah. <clears throat> Although you could say that binge drinking is a type of alcohol abuse. It's yeah. A, it's a behavioral pattern. For, for sure. A drinking behavior. Um, but yes, uh, alcohol abuse is not necessarily alcoholism, and neither is binge drinking. Alcoholism is its own thing. Yeah. Alcohol abuse is if you are drinking, uh, if there is a problem with your drinking. Um, if it's affecting your school, your work, your personal life, your family, your uh-huh. friends. Yeah. Uh, you could be an alcohol abuser. Right. Um, alcoholism is a 
chronic disease right. where you are physically dependent on alcohol. You need to drink. You got to have that drink. Once you start drinking, you have a hard time stopping. Mm-hmm. Uh, you develop a tolerance for drinking, so you need to drink more. Uh, and if you stop drinking, you suffer withdrawal symptoms. Yes. That's alcoholism. Right. And you suffer withdrawal symptoms because, like you said, you've become physically dependent on it. And we'll talk about how in yeah. this episode. But yes, alcohol abuse, that just means you need to get your, your act together. Big time. <laughs> sure. Alcoholism, a chronic disease. Yeah. It, it means you need medical help and, and beyond medical help, psychological help. You need treatment. Yeah. You're probably not going to be able to do it on your own. No. And with alcohol abuse, you may need treatment as well. Everyone's different. Sure. Uh, yeah, yeah. I don't think we should chase people away from seeking treatment no, if they're of course just not. alcohol abusers and not necessarily alcoholics. Yeah. I think probably if you're a serious abuser of alcohol, it, you probably feel like an alcoholic in a lot of ways. Yeah. I mean, if you woke up this morning and you don't remember where you were last night for five hours. Abuser of alcohol. You may want to, you know, check into that a little bit. Or you may not. Well, yeah, and it depends. I think a lot of people think that um, if they if they are an abuser of alcohol, that they have to just stop entirely for the rest of their lives. Yeah, not necessarily. And, I mean, back in 1940, yes, that was probably the case. These days, there's been a different approach to managing alcoholism and alcohol abuse mm-hmm. to where you, you definitely don't have to abstain, although that's still like the model, typically. Yeah. And again, it depends on the person. Some people can do that. Um, some people can drink socially uh, and never have a problem. Some people can have a problem, go back to just drinking socially. And some people need to just, they just can't have it anymore. And they know that. Right. You know? Yeah. And the, the key is to find out what kind of person you are, you know? Yes, by stopping. That's how you find out. Probably so. You see what happens when you stop. Yeah, exactly. Uh, there are more than 17 million Americans uh, who are either alcoholic or abuse alcohol, uh, more men than women, um, apparently 10% to 3 to 5%. And uh, this says <laughs> that if you have 14 or more drinks a week as a man or seven or more drinks per week as a woman, you are at risk for alcoholism. And do you know why? I don't. Because the National Institutes of Health themselves define moderate drinking as 14 drinks a week or less for a man and seven drinks a week or less for a woman. Like, that's moderate drinking in the United States. Yeah, as a couple, far as like a couple of beers a night. <clears throat> yeah, that seems about right to me. It does. And if you're <clears throat> if you are um enraged by this gender disparity, yeah. Let's all just calm down because uh-huh. it has to do with uh usually body type and uh metabolism. Yeah, of course. And it's not like, little lady, right? you only get half the drinks, because we're drinking the rest. No, I've known some. We're drinking your share. I've known some ladies that can drink me under the table. Sure, but it's the average. That's right. Um, it is more prevalent among younger folks, 18 to 44, than older people as well. Uh, and it will touch many people's lives, uh, whether or not you are an abuser or an alcoholic. Uh, they say that... More than 40% of Americans have been exposed to alcoholism somewhere in their family. Yeah. Um, I'm surprised it's not a little more than that. I was surprised by that statistic, too. I wonder, um, this, this article's fairly old. We had to go through and update some of the stats. Yeah. But um, I'm wondering if, if that's more or less these days, because it does seem low. 
Uh, yeah, I mean, if you're talking about your extended family, because uh, it doesn't say immediate family. No. And, uh, that, and that's, I mean, that brings up, you know, one of the things, one of the reasons everybody's like, you shouldn't be an alcoholic. Alcoholism is a problem. is not just because of what it does to the individual, but because of the effects it has on people who are raised by alcoholics. Yeah, you're, I think, four times more likely to become an alcoholic if one of your parents is an alcoholic. Yeah, uh, you also uh, are more likely to experience anxiety, depression, behavioral problems. And um, there's a lot of programs that are geared toward helping children of alcoholics cope. Yeah, my grand paternal grandfather was a nasty drunk. Oh, yeah. Uh, he died when I was like five, so I didn't know him very well. But um, as went with my father, my father like didn't drink. So it can go both ways, you know. You mm-hmm. might become an alcoholic or you might be like, no, no, no. That was your dad's dad? Yeah, I'm not oh, touching yeah. that stuff. Yeah. And uh, I don't think my dad, maybe he drinks a little bit here and there now, but he pretty much was just like, no. Like I grew up in a, in a household with no alcohol. Yeah. Because my mom didn't drink either. Yeah. So I wonder what happened to me. <laughs> I went to college. I was uh, I was going to say, I don't have anybody in my family who with a history like that. Yeah. I will say this, though. In going through the adoption process, it really makes you take a look at your own lineage and not be super precious about it. Oh, yeah? Yeah, because you pick out tolerances of what you will accept in birth parents. Like if they have disease or mental illness or alcoholism or drug abuse in right. there and you start to think about your own family and extended family. And you're like, oh, wait a minute. There's alcoholism and drug abuse and mental illness and huh. suicide attempts. And it makes you think, oh, well, it's not like my seed is anything special. <laughs> <laughs> you know? Yeah. So I thought it was pretty interesting. Uh, it was a growing experience, huh? It was a growing experience. Nice, man. So um, some people, like we said, can drink and it doesn't become a problem as an abuser or as an alcoholic, some people do, and they think there are uh, can be a combination of factors, uh, including genetic, physiological, psychological, and social. Yeah, and uh, genes they haven't they don't know the gene, right? They're pretty sure that there is a genetic link. <clears throat> yeah, I thought surely this article is old enough that if I just do a search now, I'll find well they know this gene and this gene are involved. No. Yeah. I couldn't find any genes named. The reason why they think there's a genetic link is thanks to twin studies. They found that alcoholism is more prevalent among identical twins than among fraternal twins, right. which suggests that there is a genetic component to it. And they also think that genes play a role in for for like an individual whose um, pleasure circuit is uh, a, like just really highly tuned. Yeah, so physiologically, mm. if your dopamine just goes off the charts right. more than someone else's might, then yeah. you might be more at risk. Yeah, that you're going to be like, I want to do that again. Yeah. Give me another Give me another beer. Right. Whatever. Or tin. <laughs> right. Yeah. Well, yeah, and that's another thing we didn't necessarily point out early on is an alcoholic, there's no stopping. Yeah. Like stopping equals like falling over and blacking out. Or being arrested or um, running out of um, alcohol in the entire house and not being able to, like, find their keys to go get more. Uh, yeah, I don't know if that's, like, a, a daily thing. Like, um, there are alcoholics who drink every night and don't drink to blackout proportions. Um, but that certainly can happen. Uh, psychologically, um, if you suffer from depression or if you 
don't feel very good about yourself, you have low self-esteem, you probably be more likely to develop uh, alcoholism as a drinker. Yeah. And then socially, of course, uh, we've talked. To, I don't think we've done one just on peer pressure, but we've talked about it a lot. Yeah. And that's a big reason why kids will uh, start drinking and then factor in what they see around them every day. Yeah. Have and you seen advertisements like this, and TV and movies? Like, like whateverville or whatever. No. Um, I think it's like Bud Light. Like they put together a whole town that's just like one big party all the time, fueled by Bud Light. Yeah, man. And then like these new absolute ads that are just like these crazy like eyes wide shut parties, and everybody's like, I don't think it's just so either. incredibly rich and glamorous, and having yeah. like like they're just so out of control, having a great time. They're also clearly like snorting ecstasy or something too. <laughs> right. But like it's an absolute ad, you know. So yeah, if you're like fourteen. You're like, I want to be at that party. As a matter of fact, maybe if I open this bottle of Absolute right here and invite a few friends over, that party will start my house. Yeah. It definitely sends the wrong message. <laughs> yeah. And I'm surprised that this stuff is allowed and not a little bit more, you know, I guess it can't do anything. There are regulations for alcohol advertisements, but. Yes, you can't, you can't sh- suggest that alcohol is fun. Right. You know? <laughs> You're like, hmm, you might have to rethink every campaign we've ever done. <laughs> uh, some signs that you may have a, uh, be an alcoholic is if you don't want to eat anymore. You don't really care about food. Uh, if you drink alone, that's uh, one of the big ones they say. Uh, if you're lying about your drinking or secretly drinking, um, that's a big one. Mm-hmm. Uh, like if you're telling, you know, your family, like, I've stopped, I've stopped, and you're mixing the vodka with the orange juice in the morning. Yeah, or you've got, like, a... Bad sign. Yeah. Very bad sign. Sure. What are you going to say? You've got, like, booze stashed around the house? Yeah, Hiding exactly. places? Uh, and then if you're drinking to forget your problems, which I think, that's why a lot of people drink. Uh, if you're unhappy uh, when you're not drinking... Yeah. And uh, super touchy and irritable. Yeah. Or if you're suffering from those blackouts, if you're blacking out a lot, then uh, although alcohol affects some people differently, I'm not a uh, blackouter. Uh huh. Um, even though I've had times where I've had way too much to drink, I never really blackout. But some people blackout pretty easily. Yeah. So that might be a sign that alcohol affects you differently, and you might want to take a look. Yeah, and that's another argument in favor of genetics. It's it, the people experience things differently. Sure. You know, um, so we are going to dive into your body, the body of the alcoholic. Gross. Right after uh, this message. So, Chuck, yeah. the drink has been taken. That's right. Um, and the first thing that happens when it hits the gut is it starts getting absorbed. Well, the first thing that happens is it says, here I am. And it starts irritating your stomach lining. Yeah. The, it's funny that, that, well, it's not funny, but like you take an alcohol in your body and your body immediately is like, no. Yeah. It's not like your body doesn't want the alcohol. Right, right. It's it starts a, trying to get rid of it in every way possible as soon as it enters your body. Yeah. So alcohol is a poison to yeah. start with, but your body metabolizes it into an even worse poison. Yeah. Um, and yeah, it wants to get rid of it. 
immediately, so which is why you vomit sometimes. That's right. Twenty percent of it uh, is absorbed in the stomach, and the other eighty percent is absorbed in the small intestine. And uh, depending what you're drinking, it's going to be absorbed quicker uh, or more slowly. Right. So, like vodka sure. will be absorbed faster than beer because vodka has a higher alcohol content. That's right. Its concentration of alcohol is higher than beer. That's right. Uh, when you go, to, when your body starts to metabolize it, um, about 10% is removed in urine and breath by the kidneys and lungs, and then your liver takes care of the rest. Yeah, and it's and just takes, like, It takes oh a beating God. in the process. Yeah, because again, it's a toxin. It's also a carcinogen. Did you know that? I found that out researching this. Oh, yeah. Um, and as your lungs are, or as your liver is trying to just get rid of all this stuff and metabolize it and break it down into other parts, um, you're you're drinking more and more and more. Yeah, right? which can kill you. Like in a night, it can kill you. You can die very easily from consuming too much alcohol in a single sitting. Yeah, apparently they have that quantified. Um, as your blood alcohol content or blood alcohol concentration goes up, that's where you drink faster than your liver is able to metabolize it and process the alcohol. Yeah. Which... Results in you getting drunker and drunker, right? Um, but after you get to a blood alcohol content of 0.35 um, to 0.5 percent, mm-hmm. which I guess is like if you just take any, any like a, a cubic centiliter of blood, 0.35 percent of that would be alcohol. That seems like a lot. Well, that's what puts you in a uh, alcohol-induced coma, right? So I would think it's a lot. So up to a half of a percent. You're you're only at risk of a coma. After a half of a percent, you're facing death. Yeah. Like Alexander the Great. Uh, oh, did he die from alcohol poisoning? Allegedly, he did from a, a wine drinking contest. That's never a good idea. <laughs> food and drinking contest in general. We did one on those, on food contests, but mm-hmm. I don't think those are ever a good idea. No. You know who else doesn't? Ryan Reynolds. Hates eating contests. Oh, really? Yeah. What well, did he... Make a stand? Yeah, he did. Like uh, just a social media stand, probably. No, he wrote a, a essay in the Huffington Post. Oh, really? About what, how just disgraceful and what a waste it is. And yeah. just how it just, it's such an arrogant thing to do, an eating contest, while it, people are yeah. starving. I agree. Yeah. And then well, he, you would love this essay. And he put a picture of his six-pack abs. <laughs> right. He said, plus, you can't look like this. Bam. <laughs> Uh, let's talk about the brain because it definitely affects your brain. Yes, it does. Uh, specifically, it is going to alter the levels of your neurotransmitters and those are what sends those chemical messages all around and your body. And that's why you're going to end up slurring and stumbling and losing motor function. Yeah. It's because it's dumbing you down. Yeah. Your brain is not able to communicate with itself, uh, or the rest of your body the way it's supposed to because the neurotransmitters have, are being affected. And two in particular are being affected. GABA, our friend that puts us to sleep, yeah. is increased. GABA release or GABA production is increased when alcohol is, is introduced to the body, right? Yes. And then glutamate, uh, actually, uh, which is an excitatory neurotransmitter, gets you up, 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 gives you some pep, is actually reduced when you drink alcohol. So you go from sleepy to sloppy because GABA's increased and glutamate's decreased. 
Yeah, and this whole time you go from sleepy to sloppy, but your dopamine is through the roof. Yeah. So sleepy or sloppy, you're going, isn't this great? (laughs) This is the best thing ever. Speaking of great, I think you're great. Uh, And that's all because of dopamine. You know, when I saw this now, I saw glutamate. It makes me wonder if the brain has an umami taste to it. Gross. But don't you wonder, though? No. No. (laughs) (laughs) You can eat brains. Yeah, you can. You can get them in like a can at the grocery store. Yeah, you can get you can get them in a fancy restaurant. Sure. Uh, Where else? <laughs> other places that you Quick Trip. Quick Trip, sure. <laughs> you can get everything at Quick Trip. Isn't that what's in potted meat? Uh, I'm sure there's some in potted meat, but I think potted meat makes like a brains brand. A brains brand. A, or a brains, <laughs> yeah. So gross. I used to work at the Golden Pantry, you know, in Athens, and mm-hmm. we had. Dudes that would come in there, like, you know, road workers that would get their, like, pack of saltines and potted meat right. was their lunch yeah. that they would get on the way to work. Yeah. And, like, a 98-ounce Mountain Dew. <laughs> like, that's healthy living, brother. <laughs> <laughs> their arm would just fall off on their way out the door. <laughs> yeah, and a few packs of cigarettes, too, probably. Yeah. Um, so how specifically, there, there are regions of the brain that are specifically affected in different ways. I guess we should go over that, too. Sure. Like the cerebral cortex? Well, the cerebral cortex, right? That's your, that's where your executive function is located. That's where things like, maybe I should stop drinking for the night decisions are located. Or, um, maybe I shouldn't uh, get in a fight with that cop. Right. Um, or maybe I shouldn't start that fire. Whatever. All of this stuff is located here in your prefrontal cortex, right? And it becomes impaired, again, because your neurotransmitters are uh, reduced, they're being affected, and your brain's not communicating with itself any longer. So the boss, the executive function, is basically silenced. And that actually has a one-two punch as far as alcohol consumption is concerned. Not only is your judgment impaired, meaning your behavior just takes all sorts of left turns Mm -hmm. while you're drunk, right? But also... Remember we said the reward pathway is activated by alcohol and your dopamine's going crazy? Yeah. Well, your prefrontal cortex is also responsible for um, judging whether a pleasurable experience has an adaptive um, benefit to it. Yeah, whether it's worth it. Right. The thing is, is when this is impaired, your that part of your brain is not able to judge drinking is not worth it. So it's all totally worth it. So it's all pleasure. Yeah. So it has like this this really um, this crazy effect. I mean, alcohol is so smart; it knows what it's doing. Yeah, I mean, it lowers your inhibitions, and that uh, if you're abusing alcohol, that's a bad thing. Um, if you have a glass of wine before you have to, you know, go up on stage. That's a different thing. Oh, well, you're the exception, <laughs> I guess, huh? I said a glass of wine, not 12 glasses of wine. <laughs> oh, speaking of, uh, there's this fresh air I've been meaning to listen to with an author named um, oh, Sarah Hepola. Yeah. Or Hepola. I haven't listened yet, so I don't know how to say her last name. But she uh, is a recovering alcoholic, and she apparently, it says in the description, she got up and spoke in front of like a crowd of 300. Uh-huh. Um, and was so drunk that she had no recollection of it the next day. Oh, wow. Can you imagine that? Man, that's my worst nightmare. I mean, like, going out on stage, you're like, okay, am I all right? Like, uh, I'm relaxed, but I'm not too relaxed, right? Yeah. Like, being blackout drunk on stage, that's, wow. That is a scary thought. 
So, Chuck, that's just the, the prefrontal cortex we've been talking about. There's other regions of the brain that get smacked around by alcohol's effects. That's right. The cerebellum, uh, that's your movement and balance, so that's why you're stumbling around. Right. Because that is impaired. Uh, your hypothalamus and pituitary, um, hormone release and automatic brain functions. So right. they depress the nerves in the hypothalamus and they, we're talking about sexual arousal. You might be more aroused, but you might not be able to perform sexually at the same time. Right. So that's a, it's very negative. That's a mixed message that alcohol, <laughs> that alcohol is sending, sends you. <laughs> you know, like, hey, go talk to that, that girl over there and, uh, maybe see what happens. And then physically you're like, well, nothing's happening. It's embarrass yourself time. Yeah. Like why you set me up alcohol. And then there's the medulla. That's right. The medulla is located at the, in the brainstem. So it's a very, um, ancient part of the human brain, right? And it controls things like breathing, body temperature, um, really important stuff. Automatic stuff. Right. And yeah. alcohol impairs this, the medulla's function. So you may pass out and stop breathing. Yeah. Uh, your body temperature can go haywire, which can lead to all sorts of other problems. Um, and your gag reflex is centered in your medulla. So you could end up like John Bonham, passed out, throwing up and, um. Choking to death. Yes. Man. That is sad stuff. Uh, we'd already talked a little bit about blackouts, but, uh, you can have that short-term memory loss or it can lead to long-term, uh, memory loss and like onset of dementia. You've heard of or may have even known people that have been described as pickled from alcohol. And, uh, that's just, you know, that's someone whose body is just not and brain are not functioning. Yeah, there's actually, anymore, like there's, they should. there's a specific vitamin deficiency that can come from alcohol because, uh, um, Prolonged exposure to alcohol or prolonged consumption of alcohol over the years um, reduces your body's ability to absorb thiamine or vitamin B. Yeah. And <clears throat> vitamin B is a very uh, important vitamin that you need. It's an essential vitamin, meaning that you need to get it elsewhere, like you need to eat it because your body is either doesn't produce or it doesn't produce enough. Yeah. So um, with vitamin B, it helps brain cells um, turn carbs into energy. Very important. It also helps nerves transmit information, also very important. And when you have a thiamine deficiency, you can end up with what's called um, Wernicke-Korsakoff syndrome, where basically your brain shrinks, you become confused, disoriented. Um, you essentially lose your mind in a lot of ways because your brain is no longer able to function correctly or communicate with itself. Not just while you're drunk. Yeah. Overall. Yeah. They call it wet brain. Uh, and they're actually two different things that are often described together. Uh, Wernicke's, uh, encephalopi- encephalopathy <laughs> and Korsakoff syndrome, but they often go hand in hand. And one of the scary things about this is it's has a very high rate of, uh, being not diagnosed. So like, I think only 20% of, uh, cases are diagnosed before death. Oh, wow. And a lot more after they're like, oh, turns out they had wet brain. Yeah. Nothing you can do about it now. So uh, that is certainly also sad, as are um, withdrawal symptoms. If you have a, an actual dependence uh, and you're an alcoholic, when you stop drinking, um, within a day to three days, <clears throat> probably closer to a day, um, you're going to be experiencing some pretty nasty withdrawal syndromes. Right. And b- the reason why is because your your brain becomes dependent on alcohol, right? It basically says, oh, okay, 
this guy's going to drink all the time. I don't see a time when he's ever going to stop drinking. So I need to adjust my output of neurotransmitters. Yeah, like change my brain chemistry completely. Right, to account for this, this introduction of alcohol because the body seeks homeostasis, right? Right. So this is its way of adjusting itself to seek homeostasis in the presence, the constant presence of alcohol. Um, and so when you remove that alcohol, the brain's chemistry has been altered yeah. over time. And now you're probably suddenly removing alcohol, and you are going to go through withdrawal symptoms. And actually, people have died from uh, acute alcohol withdrawal. Oh, I'm sure. Where they, they, they probably should have weaned themselves off rather than just quit drinking cold turkey because, again, the hallmark of alcoholism is a physical dependence on it. Yeah. And that part of your, your physical dependence is your brain chemistry. Yeah, and there's a lot more, uh, more and more people are thinking that weaning off is a safer approach. Well, I think that's what happened to Amy Winehouse. Like she, oh, really? she just quit cold turkey and died very quickly. Wow. Yeah. Uh, in withdrawal, you're going to get this, be disoriented. Um, you might have hallucinations, nausea, uh, sweating, seizures, delirium tremens. The DTs, uh, actually has the same, uh, effect as a lot of these, uh, hallucinations, sweating. Your heart rate's going to be funky. You're going to be shaking and shivering. Uh, just watch Leaving Las Vegas and Man. Nicolas Cage if you want to be scared away from booze. Yeah. That was a tough movie. It was. What about uh, When a Man Loves a Woman? That was a tough one. Yeah. Uh, um, Days of Wine and Roses. Never saw that. Classic. I think it was uh, Jack Lemon was an alcoholic in that one. Uh, 28 Days. Not to be confused with 28 Days Later. Different movie. 28 Days. That's when Sandra Bullock played a zombie. <laughs> right. Right. <laughs> Just kidding. Uh, what else? There's, surely there's more. Oh, yeah. I haven't seen Flight. Have you seen Flight with Denzel? Yeah, that was pretty good. Was it? But he was a big time alcoholic. That was shot that, right? here in Atlanta. Um, yes, he was. And uh, Clean and Sober, the Michael Keaton movie. Mm. Uh, these are all off the top of my head, but they've been, it's been an oft covered subject. And it's t- they're usually very tough to watch. Agreed. Uh, so let's take a break and uh, hug each other. <laughs> so we can get through the rest of this thing. All right. And we'll talk a little bit more about uh, what alcohol does to your body and things you can do to uh, stop. Yes. Learning stuff with Joshua and Charles. Stuff you should All right. Uh, so we talked a lot about the health damage you're going to suffer as an alcoholic. Um, in the brain. In the even. brain, yeah. Uh, internally, you're going to, your liver's going to take a beating. So your kidneys, your heart, your brain, and your central nervous system. Uh, your liver, actually, you can, uh, the first step to <clears throat> bad alcohol damage is alcoholic hepatitis, which is inflammation of the liver. And then you have about a 70% chance. If you have uh, alcoholic hepatitis to develop full-blown cirrhosis, and that is when little bit by little bit your liver just turns into scar tissue. Yeah. And it becomes an unusable organ. Yep. And it is nasty if you see pictures of, like, cirrhosis-damaged livers. Yeah, because, again, your your liver, while it's metabolizing alcohol, turns it into acetaldehyde, which is really toxic. Like, yeah. alcohol is toxic. But for some reason, while we process it, we turn it into something even more toxic. Yeah. And the liver suffers as a result. Uh, your stomach, 
uh, the lining of the stomach can just get eaten away in your intestines. Uh, uh, can lead to ulcers and obviously in the moment, uh, nausea and vomiting. Uh, your pancreas could lead to pancreatitis and cancer, like you mentioned. Yeah, because cancer, alcohol is a carcinogen and, uh, exposure over the years by being an alcoholic, um, can result in all, a, a bunch of different alcohol, alcoholic cancers are what they're called. Like you can get them of the throat, of the larynx, um, you can get liver cancer, obviously, mm-hmm. just from being exposed to alcohol over and over again. I had no idea you could get cancer from alcohol. It makes really? sense, but I just yeah. never thought of it as a carcinogen. Uh, if you're over 65, you're in bigger trouble because your body just doesn't metabolize alcohol as well at that point. Um, and like we said, uh, men have a little better time metabolizing alcohol than women. Right. Um, I, I remember at my bar in L.A., the drawing room, there was this old drunk there. I won't say his name because I found out he's still alive. But it was just remarkable to me that this guy was alive. Oh, yeah? I mean, he was into his 70s and just dropped dead drunk every single time I saw him. Wow. And I checked back, and this was in the late 90s, and then I was in L.A. last year, mm-hmm. went to the bar, asked if he was still around. They said, oh, yeah, he'll be here in a few hours. Wow. And I was like, man, how is he alive? Milk thistle. What's that? It's a, like, it's a, I think you make a tea out of it or whatever. It's a very famous um, liver cleanser. Interesting. Milk maybe, thistle. Maybe he's on the milk thistle. Yeah. Milk thistle, and he's eating a lot of meat. So he's getting tons of vitamin B. That's how that guy's alive. Maybe. He was a straight vodka guy, which is always a kind of a, can be an indication. I think that that helps though. Also, if I remember from one of our other episodes, like the clearer the, the alcohol, usually the fewer the impurities. Yeah. So maybe that's what it is. That's keeping him alive. Yeah. The vodka. And he, he didn't mix it with anything. So, but I mean, look at like Boris Yeltsin and people like he was old when he died. Yeah. He had that nose that was like a cantaloupe, the gin blossom, mm-hmm. which doesn't necessarily mean you're an alcoholic. People take it for that, though. Yeah, I mean, that's rosacea, but it, alcoholism definitely will uh, doesn't help the gin blossom situation. Um, and then there's fetal alcohol syndrome, which is the saddest thing you can imagine. Yes, it says here that um, fetal, fetal alcohol syndrome is the number one preventable cause of mental impairment. What? Yeah. What? Wow. It's pretty amazing. Yeah. So if you're drinking uh, too much, you shouldn't drink at all when you're pregnant. Yeah. Although some in Europe, they're like, oh, you can have a glass of wine well, in the third it, trimester. Yeah. Here as well, too. Like, apparently, you know, it's it's gained acceptance that, like, you can you can have something occasionally or whatever. Like, wine usually is what they say. Right. But um, and I realize this this article is old, but it specifically says like the Surgeon General is like, do not drink while you're pregnant. Well, I think that's the the fallback recommendation. Yeah, is I think they feel, if it feels like a tricky thing to say. Well, you can maybe drink this a little bit here and there. Right. I think it's easier for them to say just don't drink. Yeah. For nine months, and uh, and everybody says it's easy for you to say, yeah. Surgeon General. And then you have zero chance of any complications like this. Right. Well, at least fetal alcohol syndrome. Yeah, so that's when uh, your your little baby's brain cells are developing uh, and forming connections in utero, and alcohol exposure in there is going to disrupt that uh, from the get-go and lead to um, 
You can have a physical problems like your head might be smaller than normal. Microencephaly. Yeah, you might have some uh, facial uh, abnormalities, uh, and then later in life, uh, you could be in big trouble as far as uh, cognitive functioning, memory, learning, uh, disabilities. So it's a it's a pretty rough one. And it's all because alcohol impedes cellular division during development, right? So when yeah. the fetus is exposed to alcohol, which easily crosses the placental barrier, um, the cellular division, it, it doesn't go according to plan. Yeah. So not good. And again, with adoption, that's one of the things you have to consider because most of these birth mothers are, have some sort of issue with drugs or alcohol. Yeah. And fetal alcohol syndrome, that's the one that even the agencies say is like, you don't want to mess with that. Really? Yeah. Like do your research on drugs and how they affect the baby. And you'd probably be surprised. That, so alcohol is worse than drugs oh yeah. on fetal development? Absolutely. Wow. Yeah. Wow. It's the worst. Huh. Um, yeah, it's pretty, it's pretty scary. So this number I don't think is right anymore. 185 billion per year in medical expenses. It's either 225 or 295. Okay. And that's in the United States. And that's crime, lost productivity, accidents. Uh, medical expenses. The economic impact of alcoholism. Yeah, that is close to $300 billion. Yeah. That's amazing. Yeah. All right, so what can you do? There's a a pot of gold at the end of this rainbow. There's a... The, for many, many years, there was... Um, your only hope was Alcoholics Anonymous. Not even 12-step programs, specifically Alcoholics Anonymous, which yeah. was founded in either 1930 or 1935. Do you remember? No, no. Um there's some pretty great articles about Alcoholics Anonymous and, you know, its effectiveness, that it's tributes to it. Just it's this it's its own thing and it's helped undoubtedly tons of people. Oh, yeah. Um, but there's been alternatives that have developed over the years, but it took a while. Supposedly, it wasn't until like the 60s or 70s that alternatives to AA grew up. Um, and some of them say... No, you don't need to believe in a higher power uh, to get over alcoholism. You can find that in yourself. Um, other people, like um, I think one's called moderation management, says yeah. you don't have to abstain from life. You can try to just you know become a moderate drinker. Yeah, and then if that doesn't work, then yeah, you probably should abstain for life. Um, and some others say. 12-step programs are great, but you could also do the same thing with cognitive behavioral therapy. Sure. Um, so, But some sort of treatment program that involves like a change in behavior through either 12-step support groups, one-on-one counseling, um, that's the gold standard for treating alcoholism. But over the years, especially lately, people have been turning more and more to prescription drugs. They become increasingly promising as well especially as we start to learn how genes interact with specific drugs. The more we can learn about a person's genes and how they interact with drugs, the more targeted treatment of alcoholism will be, it seems like. Yeah, this article I found in the New York Times, Drugs Help Tailor Alcoholism Treatment. Uh, the, the wish is that one day they will be able to, because everyone's different, like we were saying, as far as alcoholism goes. Mm-hmm. Uh, so you can't have one treatment for such a, a varied group. So they're hoping one day to be able to tailor drug treatment programs, pharmaceuticals for alcohol treatment, the same way they do uh, with depression or anxiety or any uh, mental illness. Right. It's like, this doesn't work? Well, then try this one. Yeah, exactly. That one's kind of working? Well, add this one in, and it's really going to make it pop, you know? 
Uh, and right now, I think there are three approved FDA uh, treatments. Um, two of them, naltrexone and acamprosate, uh, reduce cravings to drink. And then there's antabuse, which I've heard of for a little while, and that's the one that makes you sick when you drink. Yeah. I mean, that's pretty rough. Like, only a drug like that could find its roots in Puritan America. Yeah. You know? <laughs> um, but that naltrexone, there's a good article about... Um, in in the Atlantic called The Irrationality of Alcoholics Anonymous. Mm-hmm. And the author experiments with naltrexone and finds, like, amazingly, to her astonishment, like, it really works. Yeah, it says in here, um, in studies, in clinical trials, they found one in seven alcoholics that uh, works for one in seven alcoholics. Those two, naltrexone and alcomprosate. Mm-hmm. And it, with um, naltrexone, probably both of them, uh, but definitely with naltrexone, it targets your pleasure center when alcohol is present. Yeah. So it, it, it targets your pleasure center, but it's not like you go through life like ahedonic. You know, you can still experience joy and happiness and pleasure. Right. But specifically with alcohol, it reduces the effect that it has on the limbic system. So you don't crave it as much. Or, yeah, and when you do, fun. right. And when you do crave it, I think in that New York Times article, you found somebody's, somebody who takes naltrexone is saying, I still get cravings, but they're short-lived and they're not nearly as intense because of the naltrexone. Right. But again, it only works for about a seventh of the people who take it. Yeah, and this is a modern thing. Uh, years ago, offering to treat uh, a drug with another drug uh, was scoffed at. Yeah. But now people are embracing it a little bit more as, like, uh, I guess, a lesser of the evils. Yeah. So at least you're not killing your body with alcohol abuse. And one of the things, Chuck, that came up when we did a, the addiction podcast um, was that alcoholism and all addictions are a chronic disease and relapse are to be expected. Sure. As with any chronic disease, it's you, you go through le- relapses. And apparently Alcoholics Anonymous did a um, survey in 2007 of like 8,000 of its members in North America and found that 33% of them were still abstinent after 10 years. So 30%. a lot of people, yeah, a lot of people relapse. And I, be, I bet you anything, those 33% are the ones that are still working that program regularly. Well, yeah, you, you have to. Like, part of AA is you still go to meetings, yeah. um, at least occasionally, years for the rest of your life, basically. Yeah. There's a really good article that came out in Harper's in 2011 called The Drunks Club, The Cult That Cures. Totally worth reading. Yeah. I posted a PDF of it on our site for this podcast page. It is Probably the best article that's ever been written about Alcoholics Anonymous. Oh, wow. Yeah. It's like a gift because the author is a, a, a an alcoholic uh-huh. and an Alcoholics Anonymous attendee and a, an incredible writer. Just a great Recovered writer. alcoholic or recovering or? I don't remember. Because that's, I probably you know, recovered. I think. Uh, or recovering. That's why they that tag sticks with you for life. I think that's one of the things they teach you is to. You should always consider yourself an alcoholic. Right. Like and, you have the disease, but if you're in recovery, then that's, uh, you're on the right path. Yeah. And the, I, there, I was reading an article about alternatives to Alcoholics Anonymous, and one of them was like women on sobriety or something like that, I believe. Uh-huh. We're saying like, that we don't agree with that. Like, that's a temporary tag. It's not for life. Yeah. Um, and the, the spokesperson for that organization was saying like, if I used to smoke and then I quit, after a certain time, I'm not like, yeah, I'm a smoker. For life, yeah. Like you, you 
used to smoke or you just don't even, it's not even a thing. It's not a label you have to carry around for the rest of your life. I see the value in both, to be honest, and and the reward of being able to say, I'm not an alcoholic anymore. Right, or the recognition that you yeah. used to be and, and you need to slope. remember that every day totally. or else. Yeah, I think it's probably as, as varied as people's reaction to alcohol. Like if you Absolutely. need that, great. If you need to be free of that eventually, great. Well said. If you are an alcoholic, go get help. Like, you probably don't have to go any further than your favorite search engine to find a lot of resources that um, can get you help. Oh, yeah. People are dying to help people kick alcohol and drugs. They love to do that stuff. They're crazy you know, it's for It's like it. their life's work. Yeah. So go meet one of those people. Don't be afraid of them. Yeah. And don't be afraid of your life after because you can lead a rich, fulfilling existence. Yeah, I think that keeps a lot of people from... Wanting to kick it because yeah, they're I'm like, well, what be, am I going to I'm not exactly. going to have any fun. Yeah. Yeah. I know. I'm friends with uh, recovering alcoholics. Yeah. And they're great. Yeah. They love life. Just the same. Uh, if you... Actually, they're better. <laughs> they're not just the same because they're not blacking out and hungover. Right. <laughs> yeah. Mad all the time. If you want to know more about alcoholism, you can type that word in the search bar at HowStuffWorks.com. And since I said search bar, it's time for listener mail. Uh, I'm going to call this a uh, letter from a, from an old geezer. Okay. Because he says he's an old geezer. I would never call a person <laughs> right. of age that. Just automatically assume that. Hey, guys. I'm a geezer. <laughs> 74 years old and a regular listener. I love your show. I listen all the time when I'm driving. Uh, I'm also a musician and live in a smallish town restricted to geezers, south of Tucson. And I was just listening to the podcast on auto-tune. I share your hatred of it. No, you didn't say that in so many words, but it came out loud and clear. I'm writing, however, about the little snippet you've been uh, about reverb. Uh, when I was a senior in high school, uh, late 1950s, I was in a rock and roll band in Tucson called the Night Beats. Nice. Uh, we cut three records for a record company named Zoom Records that was started and run by two of our uh, school friends. Uh, the guy who ran the recording studio in Phoenix where we did the session could put Echo on the voice in 1959, long before manufactured reverb was widespread. Uh, he did it by placing a speaker and a microphone in an empty water tank behind the studio. Oh. He piped in the sound through the speaker and picked it up on the mic to get an actual physical echo or reverb sound for the vocal. That's pretty smart for 1950s Tucson. Not too bad, right? Yeah. Uh, he even was able to move the mic in and out to change the reverb time for the desired effect. Uh, one more interesting fact is that our singer was Pete Ronstadt, whose little sister had not yet made the big time. Barbara's tried to. <laughs> Dope. Is she from Arizona? I didn't know that. Linda Ronstadt? Yeah. That explains the Spanish language albums. Yeah, maybe so. Huh. Uh, hope you find this. Uh, <laughs> what is it? Senor Plow, no es bueno. What, was that one of the songs? Yeah, she was on one of the Simpsons episodes. Oh, really? Yeah. <laughs> Hope you find this interesting and worth the time it took to read it. Uh, it sure was an interesting time in my life. Uh, thanks for the great podcast, and that is from Lance Hoops. Nice, Lance. Thank you for that. Yeah, man, I love hearing from our uh, <coughs> listeners of age. <laughs> I like hearing from 12-year-olds and, like, 70-plus. Yeah, me too. I even like hearing from 2-year-olds uh, to 103-year-olds. Okay. How about that? Nice. That's I always felt bad. Not always. Once I came to understand that. People live beyond um, 92. Yeah. That that Christmas song excluded a lot of people. Oh, sure. Yeah. Oh, and you know, we should point out, too, I was going to read a, a full mail on it, but the uh, Pete Frampton effect. 
Yeah. It's not a vocoder. It's a talk box. Whatever. And I feel really bad because I know that. And I... Oh, you're in the heat of the podcast, man. Don't feel bad. I say all sorts of stuff where I'm I like, know, man, why did I say that or why didn't I address that? I even thought I said the words talk box and I just thought you knew something I didn't about a different name for it or something I should have spoken up. But no, no, no. That's what a talk box is. Uh, the, the tube is acting as... It's a rubber tube that runs from a speaker and the sound is going through that tube into your mouth. And so you're basically playing a guitar through a, a tiny little tube. Yeah. And you're able to make uh, changes with the shape of your mouth. And then it's a talk box. Nice. Pete Frampton. Pete you like that, too. That's a good song. Pete Frampton's opening up for us. He's actually playing the same theater as us in uh, Pittsburgh. Oh, yeah? Yeah, the acoustic tour. He's playing like the week before the week after us. Man, I wonder if he'll play All I Want to Be is By Your Side. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, if you want to know more about Pete Frampton and want to get in touch with us, actually, we don't know anything more about Pete Frampton than that. Well, we know a little more, but we don't feel like talking about it on social. Nah. If you want to get in touch with us, though, you can tweet to us at SYSK Podcast. You can join us on Facebook.com slash Stuff You Should Know. You can send us an email to StuffPodcast at HowStuffWorks.com. And as always, join us at our home on the web, StuffYouShouldKnow.com. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com. 